This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. The English Heritage Podcast is here with fresh episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe. Now, on the 75th anniversaries of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the Second World War, we're looking back at the long period of military tension that followed. The Cold War between communist Russia and the democratic West was effectively a war of ideologies. But it was also a war in which newly discovered nuclear weapons had the potential to destroy civilization. One of the eerie monuments to that is York Cold War Bunker in northern England. And joining me to discuss its story while stationed in the bunker is senior curator Kevin Booth. Greetings from the bunker, Charles. Hello. How is it down there today? Well, as normal, it's uh, very still, very steady and very quiet. Uh, I guess you feel quite protected as well. Yes, after several hours down here, it does start to get a, a little strange. You have to dip up for some fresh air, but uh, yeah, I'm okay at the moment. Because you're not quite sure what time of day it is, I suppose. Time can disappear very quickly. And it's also, you know, it's very even atmosphere down here. So you don't get that sense of how even the weather is changing outside. Mm. Now, before we talk about how this bunker came to be, let's briefly go back to the end of World War Two. Can you remind us how the war in the Pacific was quickly brought to a close? Quickly, yes. Two bombs, really. 6th of August 1945, the US drops the first ever atomic bomb, rather curiously named Little Boy, on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. And three days later, they, they drop a second, Fat Man, over Nagasaki. And within six days, the Japanese have surrendered. How many people did those first nuclear bombs kill? It's estimated anything up to 200,000 people die, perhaps half of those almost immediately and the others half with the after effects and that, you know, going on for many, many years. Mm. The effects of radiation are quite insidious and uh, and powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Quite painful deaths, really. Something that you'd never wish, really, on, on anyone. Absolutely not. No, uh, and that's... That's a sense of of the of the the force and the power of those those single weapons, really. Mm. So, why were the atomic bombs used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, there's quite a lot of debate on that. But I suppose the simple answer is because they could be. The U.S., with the help of British scientists and technology, had been working on the concept of an atomic bomb, and the first test had only been a month before. I think it's the 16th of July. But once those are in your arsenal, well, they're there to be used. And the, and the thing is, I suppose, that the war in the Pacific was dragging on. It was all but one, but Japan was not ready to surrender, or at least by the terms it had been given. So the US was faced with a prolonged campaign, potentially on Japanese soil, with the inevitable huge military and civilian losses. And President Truman and his, aim, and his aides, I should say, calculated that perhaps demonstrating the power they had using these new weapons would convince the Japanese that continuing struggle really was was futile. And, and certainly those weapons were a key factor in Japan choosing to surrender unconditionally. These weapons were obviously extremely powerful, devastating, like something that the world had never seen. And, and I presume they were a secret up until 
the fact that they were dropped. How did they change the face of modern warfare? Yeah, I wonder how many PhD research projects there are in that one question. Doubtless some of them would say, well, did they change the face of modern warfare, given that so many conventional wars have been fought since across the globe? But I, I, I think it is that sense of nuclear weapons, the sheer power And as they become more powerful, as they become more accurate and with a longer range, they place a huge question mark really over over allowing any conflict to begin because you don't know where it's going to end. So what's the connection between the development of nuclear weapons and what we know as the Cold War? How did the Cold War then start following the end of World War II? In a sense, there isn't a direct sort of causal link between those bombs being dropped on Japan and the prolonged tensions that we understand of as the Cold War. Because even when those bombs are being dropped, the Soviets, the US, Britain, France, they're technically allies still. They've just won the war in Europe and they are negotiating the sort of settlement and what's hoped to be an amicable settlement between all parties and particularly on what is going on with Germany and with Central Europe. And yet even then, I think George Orwell is referring to a Cold War in a, in a paper in 1945. Churchill refers to the Iron Curtain in his famous speech, Fulton, Missouri, in, in 1946. And by 1947, tensions between those powers have reached a point where there's a standoff. And the standoff is developing into something that potentially has military consequences as well as long-standing political consequences. And that's really 1947 that people sort of suggest is the point that the Cold War is, is beginning. Okay, and how do we define a Cold War as such? Because no one refers to the other wars as hot ones. Well, I was just ostensibly, <laughs> do they? Uh, no, I was just going to say the Cold War is not a hot one in a slightly pedantic way. It is a conflict. The Cold War is a conflict. It's just not one where the main players actually get into direct military aggression. In a way, all the other elements of hostility are there. The Cold War in Europe is developing out of conflicting visions for the future of Germany and the future of Central Europe. But it is fueled by mistrust between different sides, between fear of the other side, and between and with those kind of fundamental ideological divisions that the Soviet side and the what we might call democratic Western side felt. And the Soviets are, are worried about their own security and fear that the West are trying to obliterate them, but they're also trying to spread their influence across the globe. The Western sides adopt a policy in 1947 of containment. And the Cold War, it's geographical. The division of Europe is the most obvious line, I suppose, but it manifests itself through proxy wars. Korea is a good example. Border standoffs, through propaganda, through economic warfare, through espionage, technical prowess, even sporting prowess. And of course, through the exhibiting of military power, of which the nuclear arms race is the most sort of tangible and terrifying effect of that. You mentioned the Korean War there, which I believe happened in the 1950s, didn't it? Mm, Yeah. And and what was Britain's role then in the Cold War? Because you're sitting in York Nuclear Bunker. It was obviously built as part of Britain's role in this silent conflict. Um, what, What did Britain do in the Cold War? Well, the Korean War is a good example in a way. Britain had been, was one of the Allied victors. It was, it, it was one of the countries committed to rebuilding 
Germany and committed to freedoms within Europe. And from 1949, it's a member of NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, that block of Western powers holding out against the Soviet threat. And Korea is one of those proxy wars where the West are trying to contain communist expansion and Britain agrees to be part of that and sends troops. It is part of this alliance of Western powers. Britain itself gains the bomb in 1952 at huge cost economic cost, but it wants the bomb and it has US nuclear weapons stationed on its land throughout the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. And that really is one of the reasons why Britain felt itself at threat of nuclear attack in itself. And that's why somewhere like the Cold War bunker in York is built to help defend against such an attack. York Cold War bunker, what was the main reason for building it then? Obviously, Britain's involved in in trying to defend itself, hmm. but uh, what what was specific main purpose? York Caldwell Bunker, or Royal Observer Corps 20 Group Headquarters, as it was known at the time. It's built in 1961. It's part of a network of bunkers right across the UK. If you drive around the country roads of, of Britain, you're almost certainly going to pass by one of 1,500 small concrete bunkers settled in fields and villages no more than eight miles apart. This was the network of the Royal Observer Corps. And there, the role of the Corps, the purpose of this network, was to be able to observe nuclear weapons falling and exploding on the country and to detect their power and their location and the spread of radiation coming from them. So the group control in York is a slightly larger bunker, but it's there to coordinate all this information about an actual war, actual Armageddon being wrought upon the country. And obviously you're based up in York in the north of England. Is it thought that nuclear war, if it came to the British Isles, would probably arrive in the southeast in London or something like that? No, not necessarily. There are Soviet battle plans, and you can see that the the different scenarios in which they might launch nuclear attack. And York certainly features a railway hub with industry. East Yorkshire has tens of airstrips where our own nuclear deterrent could be launched from. So you're not really safe anywhere, and even with the sort of the explosive power and the immediate explosion, the spread of radiation means anywhere in the country, frankly, you're in danger. Can you describe the bunker that, that you're sitting in right now and how big is it and how deep underground as you look around? It's possibly not most people's sort of idea of what a bunker should be. They're either, if you see them on films, they're these sort of huge labyrinthine grids of tunnels with enormous brightly lit rooms or else they're I don't know, they're sort of dark and damp, clammy spaces. But they're always slightly otherworldly in a way. They're they're not spaces that we're familiar with. Now, I'm actually, I'm sat in a little office off a corridor, which looks for all the world like a, a normal office block. It's a very utilitarian, very ordinary feeling space. From outside, it's it's about 30 metres long. It's covered in grass. And at one end, there's some steps lead up to a, a concrete blockhouse on the top. And you can drop down from internally, you drop down to this, as I say, this sort of 25 metre long corridor with various doors running off it. 
They lead to a toilet, they lead to a canteen, a little kitchen, an office. But then other doors lead into dormitories for people to sleep in, or a room full of telephone exchange material. And then one room at the end of the corridor gives it away. You walk into this sizable space onto a balcony that loops around sort of three sides and from which you can look down into this lower well filled with charts and maps and telephones and other gadgetry and suddenly you are in the heart of, of a film set almost it feels you're you're in this space which is coordinating and plotting mm. the spread of nuclear bombs across the country so a, a map perhaps on a table with whoever's in there pushing things around and you know plotting things on the map and that what have you uh, though it's built in 1961 it, it's designed in 1955 and that's very close really to the second world war and when you see those second world films second world war films of these two level operations rooms and as you say people literally pushing things around on maps it harks back very much to that sense of how you deal with that sort of airborne threat and indeed the royal observer corps who doubtless we'll talk about their role in the second world war was to be out in the field spotting planes coming across spotting bombers and saying is that friendly or is that foe and what type is it and what trajectory is that plane flying on and where might it be dropping its bombs and it's the royal observer corps network and it's army of volunteers that gets reconstituted in 1954-55 to do this nuclear spotting role. Before we get into them in a bit more detail, just give us a quick recap of the number of rooms and how deep you are underground at the moment. I'm on the mid-level now, so there's three levels to the bunker, and the mid-level here is a, it about equates with ground level outside. It's called a, a semi-sunken bunker. One level is below ground, the main level I'm on is at ground level, but it is immersed in concrete and then it's covered in grass. So I'm at, to all intents and purposes, I feel like I'm underground. Right. And there's a dozen or so rooms across this main corridor and another three or four downstairs. It's not a big space, and yet it had to accommodate a lot of people doing a lot of very busy work if the time had come. And to get down to the bottom, was there a lift or was it stairs? It's stairs. It's a, it's a classic, really, of the bunker. It's quite a Heath Robinson place. There's quite a lot of sort of make, do and mend in a bunker like this. And you go down the single set of stairs into the lower level. But at some point in the 1970s, it was recognised that from health and safety point of view, this was not ideal because there was only way of access. So they actually erected a standard household loft ladder onto the side of the balcony so you could climb up that way if, the, if you couldn't use the stairs. Right, okay. So here you are potentially undergoing a severe nuclear threat with the entire building locked down, but it's good that you've got a second route out of the lower level. Yes, and to do that you also still need to use your legs and hands. Well, it must be said that if it's got to the point where you can't use those in the bunker, then you're not doing a fat lot else that's of use. So um, <laughs> it's sometimes difficult not to get quite, I don't know, flippant about the whole space because it feels so improbable when you know the power of nuclear weapons that this rather small concrete bunker in York could have been any use at all but 
it would have been, and, and perhaps that's what we'll get on to talking about. Mm. But if it was hit, it would have been obliterated. Oh, if it was hit, it's gone. Uh, the, the general line is that if a two megaton bomb, and two megatons is, you know, a hundred times or more greater than that which dropped on Nagasaki, if a two megaton bomb had dropped in and around York, this bunker would have been wiped out. Okay. But it, it would have underst- withstood the blast wave of that bomb if it had been slightly further away. The bunker itself, then, is it a state secret in 1961 when it's built? Uh, Yes, and probably no. It's an open secret, in a way. The the Royal Observant Corps Network, it can only run by getting thousands of people to come and support it and to volunteer. So it has promotional leaflets. You can find out about what the Royal Observer Corps are doing and what their role is. And in a way, that's part of reassuring the public that if a war comes, there is some way of presenting sort of civilian defence. Mm-hmm. So there's a reassurement. And yet, yes, it's also secret because you keep it mysterious. You keep that sense of the whole response to, in the Cold War, everything is sort of wrapped slightly in an area era of mystery, I think. Let's talk a bit more about this Royal Observer Corps and these volunteers. They staffed the bunker, I presume, from 61. But what was their day-to-day task inside? It's, it's tricky, tricky without confusing everything or going down too many rabbit holes. The Royal Observer Corps, they are a voluntary organisation. They have very few full-time paid staff. They rely on people who would sometimes spend over 30 years volunteering with them. And these are people with ordinary jobs. They come to the control perhaps once a week to train and to train, to be ready and equipped to react if the bomb ever came. But it never did come. And the bunker was never staffed in that way, in that sense of people actually being here, expecting conflict to begin. Was it largely empty during its usable life? Yeah, it is largely empty. People come and train here. The systems are kept running. It's here just in case. But there's there's no point in having it here just in case if you haven't got this amazing group of volunteers trained and ready to drop everything, to leave their family, to get out from work and get down to this place and serve and try and help the population should things come. So it is, it's kept, it's kept empty. But we know, I mean, I'm very fortunate to have talked to a lot of Royal Observer Corps veterans and they've been very kind to come down to the bunker and tell us about their experience. And so we know a little bit about how it might have felt if it was fully staffed because they did sort of 36 or 48 hour training sessions down here. So that's quite a long time to be underground, not knowing what time it is outside, to have your circadian rhythms interrupted, sleeping in shifts potentially. Would that be the sort of thing that they would experience on these training sessions? On the training sessions, yeah. And I I think if we imagine that the political tensions have come to a point where there is a risk that nuclear conflict could break out, this means that 60 people need to be in this bunker, ready for the door to be closed behind them and to begin their observation. And if the door closes behind them, once you've got 60 people down here, it's not a very big space. It's loud. The air conditioning system is grinding away in the background. If they lost power, if they lost mains power, you've got a huge generator that kicks in and simply makes the whole building vibrate and reverberate. 
and you've got the sort of heat and the moisture of 60 people breathing and living down here and that's what people say you know for even from the shorter training sessions things got very warm and very sticky and very claustrophobic down here very quickly so the air thickened in a way and it smelt worse i suppose well, yeah, if, you, if you've got no radiation outside, then you can have the ventilation system pulling fresh air in. But mm-hmm. as soon as you, there's radiation in the area, and this is what they trained with, you have to close down the outside air and you have to put the filter beds on and you take a gulp of air. You hope you're filtering out all of the particulates and you live on that until such point as people start to feel a little faint and get headachey. And then you have to get some more air in. So the whole thing becomes difficult to work in. And when we talk at the moment about wearing face masks and how challenging that can be, you're down here with increasingly foul air. And simply, you know, if, if, if actually war is about to happen, the level of pressure that you are under as a volunteer, as an individual, with a family potentially, not knowing how long you're here for and what on earth is going to happen when you get out. So if nuclear attack happened and there were 60 people there underground in that bunker, was this going to be a one-way mission and perhaps you wouldn't even get out? No, it's not a one-way mission, but it's a very short-term and very specific mission. Your role is to help military and political and civilian planners understand where the devastation is hitting and what the aftermath is in terms of radiation so that those planners know which roads or rail lines might still be operable so they can advise the public when it may or may not be safe to leave their homemade shelters you know the bombs might only drop for a few hours the aftermath of radiation might take two to three weeks to play out So you are here for anything up to 30 days. That's what the supplies will run for. And once that's finished, your job is done. So you could walk up, back up the stairs, open the big steel door and emerge into whatever there is. Right. But Uh, potentially, if you've gone down there, you've left your family behind and you may never see them again. Very likely. I suspect that must have been quite a difficult thing. Do you think those volunteer veterans were really thinking about that when they volunteered? Yes, I think they were. I think a lot of the volunteers are very... They're quite sort of playful about their experiences down here. When they were training, there was a lot of fun. There was a lot of friendship. People made lifelong friends and and, and lifelong partners through the experience. But underlying all of that, when you talk to people, they understood what they were committing to and they understood the sacrifice that they would have to make. But interestingly, a lot of them are very sort of, I think, fair in the way they reflect as to how they might have reacted had the call actually come. And they're very, they admit that they don't perhaps really know what they would have done. What are some of the sights and sounds of the bunker itself? I know you mentioned it's got air conditioning system. Potentially, you'd have to put in uh, filtration devices in case of nuclear attack to filter out any uh, radioactive particulates. But obviously, we're, it's quite quiet at the moment. <laughs> but I understand there might be a few gadgets that sort of suddenly jump into life every so often. There's still a couple of gadgets that jump into life. We have the marvellous sewage ejector plant. We're actually below the level of the main drains here. So if you need to get rid of your your mess, uh, you need to push it out. 
and that's a piece of 1961 kit and that still works it'll occasionally grind into action and sort of make a gentle hum throughout the whole building we still have an air conditioning system because it's a very sensitive space it's full of objects that would like to go moldy so we have to keep the environment just at the right sort of level so the air conditioning kicks in and and turns off but it is a very different space really as a visitor when you come round in terms of its sound and its feel it's very difficult to recreate the kind of atmosphere and the kind of sense of jeopardy and tension that would have been felt and must have been felt even on those those 48 hour training sessions have you ever thought about restaging one of these training sessions or at least getting 60 people down under there just to sort of get a sense of what it would have felt like I have, actually, and sometimes we run distinct tours where we try and suggest a sort of real-time narrative of a nuclear war to a group of people as we as we go around the, the spaces. But, you know, putting 60 people down here, well, it's 10 above our current capacity limit for a start, but it is actually quite problematic because people do tend to try and lean out and touch things. We've tried different ways of bringing the bunker to life. Uh, in the past. We've had a 10-piece chamber orchestra playing in the lower operations room. We've broadcast Doctor Strange Love, the classic Kubrick film, as part of our Cold War Film Club. We've had, uh, and I'm going to sound like a very old man now, you know, a techno duo playing in the space and, all, and various artistic exhibitions, all reflecting on the themes of the bunker and the themes of the Cold War and finding different ways to engage people in the sort of sensitivities and the emotions that were running through that period and ran through this building. Speaking of those emotions, in the general sort of zeitgeist, how close was Britain to nuclear attack and how much fear was there among British people at that time? Possibly you can separate out the how close and, and, and the level of fear. I mean, how close? Well, the bunker was never called to attention. It was never sort of staffed in the possibility. Even during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I was very surprised to learn that the Royal Observer Corps had not been put on alert. Mm. And that was 62, um, wasn't it? And that was 62. And that's the sort of closest people generally feel we came to a nuclear conflict. But the Cold War waxed and waned over its its 40 years. And there are different periods. The the Prague Spring of 1968, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in, in I think it's 79, that ratchet up the tension. And you never know where it's going to go from that point. But fear is a different thing. Fear really you know, seem to be almost endemic within the population. Nuclear weapons really had a huge sort of psychological impact globally. That that sense of the sheer devastation that they could wreak and this idea that it could happen almost by accident and the terror of politicians and world leaders who it was felt couldn't be trusted and, and you know, if you had a madman in charge of the button this ran very deep, very deep. I, I was a, a schoolboy in the in the 80s. There was a, an attack warning siren that got tested occasionally in the village. And I remember running home when that thing was being tested, running home from school thinking I had four minutes. I remember lying in bed as, as planes went over thinking, is that a bomber? And that, you know, that wasn't uncommon. So the fear was actually greater than the possibility, really, of nuclear attack. Uh, I'm not going to class myself as a 
a sort of military historian on that. That's possibly, that possibly is a true statement, yeah. The fear at times, I think, was sort of all-consuming for, for many people in this country. And perhaps that was enough to even stave off nuclear war. That's perhaps another subject for a dissertation or something. <laughs> Probably is, yeah. But when did the bunker actually close? And what happened to it afterwards? 1991. So that's quite late uh, the then. Cold, yeah, the Cold War had ended, if you can define an end. The Soviet Union had collapsed and the, all of those tensions that people had lived with dissipated, really. And the bunker was pretty antiquated by then. It was a pretty analogue system and a way of doing things. And I, I'm sure there's a much more rigorous technological response now. Uh, it was just seemed as no longer appropriate. It was locked up and essentially left to rot for about eight years. So when did English Heritage step in? We took it in around 2000. It's a scheduled ancient monument. It has the same level of protection as Stonehenge, which is rather, rather wonderful. We stepped in in 2000 as the land around it was being sold off for a modern housing estate. We managed to retain what was then the best preserved of any of the Royal Observer Corps network and indeed of many of the other bunkers associated with the Cold War. It was a building because it had been locked and left. It still had almost everything that related to its operation, even down to little handwritten notes, sellotape to a piece of wood, just reminding someone that they needed to switch X thing on before they did Y. It, full of personal references, full of all the little bits of information that put together made the system work. It sounds as though, Kevin, it's very much a time capsule. It's quite well preserved. Can you give us a few other examples of, of things that are from the period? Yeah, it is a time capsule. We've chosen to present it as 1991. I suppose that's because so much of what was left around dated to that period. There's a 1991 telephone directory in the Commandant's room. There are logs and journals where the last signature leaves off in April 1991. I've, I've checked the generator, it's still working, that kind of thing. And of course, that's when we have most people still with us who were connected with the core and who remember the close down and, and can talk with sadness, but also with pride about their service here. So we, 1991 felt like the right date to go for. We had both the physical evidence, but also the verbal, the oral histories that strongly connected with the late period of, of the bunker's operation. Have there been any challenges in conserving things down there? Many, yes. We're in, a, we're in an underground space that even though, I, I said at the outset, it feels quite stable, its humidity levels and its temperature do bounce up and down and then they reflect what's going on outside. And here I am recording this in June. It's the worst time of the year because things do tend to get very humid. And if we don't watch it, papers and textiles bloom with mould almost overnight. Wow. It's full of wood. It's full of plastics and early rubbers that don't like each other and they give off gases and those gases offend the plastic next door to them. So it's a constant task of reviewing and assessing and auditing what we have down here. And then you try and put, you know, 20 people at a time on a tour and you hope that they don't touch things and you hope they don't lean on things. But they're such small spaces 
that the intimacy of the two are of people being right next to the piece of kit that measured the power of a nuclear weapon that's such a strong part of the experience that again we have to balance access with experience with conservation and we're 15 years in now and hopefully we've got it about right how do you go on a tour then you mentioned that obviously you're quite limited in in that you can only have 20 but how does one book a tour well actually at the moment you can come to the gates it's advertised on the website i think the tours every hour and you, and you can come to the gates and someone will emerge from the blockhouse on the top and welcome you in and you get about an hour experience within the bunker which is probably enough for most people. It's interesting for some visitors who remember the Cold War, it's very, it's very affecting. It can reduce some people to tears because it does bring back those emotions. Mm. For younger people who perhaps understand the Cold War and nuclear weapons through Hollywood or through gaming, it's a revelation. It's almost as if they didn't realise it was actually a real event, a real period. And, yeah, it's quite an eye-opener to come into this space, which is part seems hopelessly sort of old-fashioned and antiquated, but in part still seems incredibly futuristic in the way it was trying to deal with things. And lastly, Kevin, what does the bunker represent for you? I know it's quite a big question. I suppose, for me, it represents the fact that nuclear war, thank goodness, didn't come to our shores and any threat was averted. But what does the bunker mean for you? I may have given away that I have something of a passion for the place. As a curator, it means a huge amount to me because it was the first project I was given when I took this role, and it's a site that I've looked after and and nurtured over 15 years. It's a site that has such a strong resonance with the public and with the people who come round because it still feels utterly relevant and the strong personal stories that we have from the Observer Corps members really connect and relate to the people who come around as visitors. And I think the other thing that the bunker means to me, the experience of curating it, is that connection with the Royal Observer Corps. An army of 20,000 people who did their best to ensure the public could, in whatever way possible, cope with the aftermath of nuclear war. I don't think they've ever really achieved that sort of national status that other service groups might, but I've been, it's been an enormous privilege to get to know them and to work with them and to try and present their legacy as well as the sort of historic reality of nuclear conflict. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more about the history of York Cold War Bunker, head to the English Heritage website. Next week, we discover the history hiding in the landscape with anthropologist, author and broadcaster, Mariana Hotter. There's a sort of slight rise in a bit of a grassy mound, and that's actually a long barrow too, that was reused in Roman times. Thanks for listening. See you next time.